Welcome to the Double Dip Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, quiz for this week. Cool as a... One of my favorites, Cucumber. Oh, no, no, no. Cool as a Patreon member supporting the Double Loop Podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help bring us and our wonderful podcast to dozens of people around the world. <laughs> now, we've got a bigger following than that, but it would really help us out if you guys would just check out patreon.com and consider contributing whatever you feel you get out of uh, our podcast every week. Well, I've got one for you. All right, hit and, me with it. All right. That's the news and... All that's fit to print? Oh. Mm-hmm. No, not quite what you were going for. That's the news and... Um, I, I, I was going for that's the news and the news is great that we've got a lot of new Patreon subscribers and we appreciate them. And we we appreciate every single dollar that people contribute because, like you said, it goes towards equipment and uh, trying to improve the, the podcast quality. Uh, some people might have thought, that's the news and I am out of here. Uh, right, right, right. An SNL uh, reference. Right. I was like, there was, I, I was, that's the other thing I was thinking. I was like, there was one of the sign-offs for the, of all the SNL people. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was, was uh, de- what, Dennis Miller, I think. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't date, uh, date us at all, does it? Not at all. <laughs> Who's Dennis uh, Miller? And this week, a big thank you to Megan for joining us as a contributor on Patreon.com. Uh, thank you, Megan, for you know, your contribution, and I uh, hope you enjoy all the uh, extra stuff we're going to be posting onto Patreon.com for our uh, contributors and uh, hopefully other people will uh, join in as well. Uh, but I wanted to bring up, before we go back to making a murderer, a big success story yeah, for Leighton Prince. Uh, and that was with the, the recent case of the, uh, <laughs> the MAGA bomber, the you know Make America Great Again bomber. Uh, it's kind of a play off the Unabomber. But uh, did you see the, the, the pictures of this guy's van? No, I, I actually hadn't seen it, but I'm looking at pictures right now, and uh, yes, now I'm looking at it. Yeah, what is your your point about this crazy person? <laughs> um, I I don't I don't think we necessarily needed the forensics to kind of point in this guy's direction. I think uh, um, you just needed the bulletin to go out and say, "Hey, you guys got anybody in your state that drives around a crazy Trump van?" And uh, Florida would have been like, "Yeah, we got a guy," and there you go. Uh, but I don't know. You still would have had Michigan, Montana, North Dakota, (laughs) South Dakota. They all would have been raising their hands too at that meeting. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, any case, it didn't make it a little bit easier that, uh, they developed a latent print (laughs) off of one of the envelopes that this was, uh, mailed in on. And, uh, I'm assuming with, uh, an or indane dione or something, some analog to that, uh, searched it through uh, NGI, uh, I'm assuming, since this is the FBI lab that did this, uh, and came up was with... Was it FBI? Uh, oh, yeah, the FBI lab uh, did uh, did did uh, did this processing. Uh, but, uh, I, I wasn't sure if it would have been the Secret Service, given, you know, um, politicians True. and all. Uh, but it was the FBI. Uh, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, which is 
always a chuckle for me because my brother's name is Christopher Ray. Uh-huh. Um, the, the FBI director spells his with a W uh, instead, but um, otherwise. Yeah, when I first heard that on the radio, I gave my brother a text and said, hey, congratulations. I heard about the new promotion. Awesome. Um, anyway, uh, and then he, so he said that they got this fingerprint ID and also uh, two probable DNA matches. And what I'm thinking that means is that they got uh, profiles off of two of the packages with the DNA testing, but uh, that's with probably one of the newer kits. And uh, typical practice is to not give a you know, full ID until they get in another sample from the individual being tested and also work that up with the same kit. I'm, I'm, so I'm thinking that's why at this point it's still a probable, uh, DNA match or they, they, he, he did, he used some sort of, we're not quite done testing it yet, but it looks like it's going to match on the DNA as well to this guy. Um, sure. But uh, it looks like, you know, fingerprints found the guy. DNA was also available. Uh, so they, they pulled that from uh, previous arrests and were able to bring this guy in. So, uh, and thankfully, no one got hurt uh, with, and none of these bombs went off. So uh, that's always very good, very good news. Not a good bomb maker and not good at planting evidence. And not good at, at uh, hiding and re- <laughs> remaining inconspicuous. <laughs> All right. We're going to get back into making a murderer. Uh, excited to get to, to more stuff. Uh, just a quick recap. We last week talked about kind of some of our feelings for some of the people involved in this season. Focused a lot in on the bloodstain pattern evidence. Um, I was saying I, I think more testing should have been done to before really ruling out the possibility that the blood could have come from uh, loading the body or transporting the body while in the car. Glenn, you were more convinced that uh, the bloodstain pattern evidence on the inside of that door suggests more that it was cast off from from hitting her or uh, and then having the the weapon go back behind somebody to then create that bloodstain pattern on there. One quick thing I want to come back around to on that before we move forward. I, I think it's still important evidence to then look at the bl- the blood in the vehicle. And I mentioned it because it had the, it was like a hair contact. What do you, what's the, what, give me the, what's the more of a like official term from a bloodstain yeah, pattern con- expert? Con- contact stain from, from what from appears hair. to be hair. And that was inside the, the vehicle. So even if she w- the, the bloodstain spatter on the inside of that back door came from cast off, not from the loading of her, but from, you know, whoever hitting her, striking her, doing something near the back door, but on the ground, not in the car, there is still this other blood evidence showing that she was in the back of that car though, right? Yes. Right. Okay. So, um, we're going to now move into the DNA evidence. So I know DNA kind of was part of what we talked about with the blood, but the big portion there was more of the blood stains. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is now more of the the DNA testing, especially uh, DNA testing on the hood latch of the vehicle. And then later we'll talk about uh, Teresa Hallbach's, the victim's DNA on the bullet fragment that's found in the garage. Right. Um, so the expert that uh, Kathleen Zellner brings in for the DNA portion uh, of things uh, is uh, Dr. Carl Reich. 
Uh, so are you familiar with, have you seen his name at all before? Cause I did, yes. I mean, it looks like he runs this company, but it doesn't look like he has any forensic science background, much more of just the, you know, DNA, uh, PhD level kind of background. Oh, no, he, he definitely gets involved in cases and, and gives testimony. He, yeah. he has this lab. He's known for developing these cartridge kits these tests that help determine source uh, and i think in one of the episodes he even lists the four and they are blood urine saliva and semen you know, right away one of the very first things that uh, in the documentary they have him saying is quote the victim's blood is only in one spot and the supposed assailant is always in another why isn't there a mixture that's what you would expect to see I don't know. I, I, again, we don't know the full context because this is an edited program that was put together for our consumption. But um, that seems just such a definitive statement for someone in forensics that uh, to make that they, I don't know. It just seems like they should know better that because that that's just clearly a an inaccurate thing to say. Yeah, I mean, in a couple of cases that he's given testimony, he tends to give. He tends to give testimony which supports a theory, an approach, a proposition, and is pretty unwilling to budge or allow for some other alternatives. And that's exactly what you had going on here. And as you're picking up on, Eric, I wasn't that put off by it. I mean, again, we don't know what was edited or cut out or be that as it may, but some of the DNA analysts that I've spoken to that are familiar with his work have said, you know, once he sort of has an opinion, he kind of doubles down on it and, you know, it's a fairly strong opinion. And and you're right. I, I, I found that to be very surprising that you couldn't allow for, oh, yeah, and in plenty of other cases, you only get a single profile and that's just what happens. Right. I, it was very surprising that it had to be a mixture. Even if he was actively bleeding, he could have covered it up he could have bandaged it he could have done a number of things where it's possible it's certainly possible that you could have just single profiles in these stains so i yeah i I don't know why the the level of certitude and the doubling down there well uh one of the big reasons to bring him in is to do additional tests on uh the dna belonging to, to Stephen avery found on the hood latch so you remember uh his his profile is found um on the the hood latch not the part inside the car the little lever you pull to pop the hood but the actual latch underneath the hood in the front that you would need to to you know to maneuver to actually lift the hood up and uh you know the murder takes place on halloween and the test that uh, the swabbing of that part of the car doesn't occur until april of the next year uh, so, and part of that is because in March, Brendan Dasty, in his confession, uh, at the really at the prompting of the detectives, uh, says that Stephen Avery was doing something under the hood of the car, and uh, didn't know what that was, but he was doing something. Again, a month later, they go and they swab that to test it. One of the things they bring up here is uh, the the amount of. DNA that's found from that swab. And uh, Kathleen Zellner makes a big deal saying that there's too much DNA found here and has uh, a recreation, has three people all handle 
the latch and uh, have it swabbed and, and tested to see how much DNA is found from other people handling a, a hood latch like this to just try to recreate and get a sample of well, how much DNA is expected to be found when you handle it like this. And basically in those samples with those people, it's like a tenth of the amount of DNA found yeah. from uh, the test that was done uh, on the uh, the actual case car uh, in the in the April testing of that hood latch. So yeah. initial thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The the amount of DNA that they find for the evidence, the Stephen Avery, is about 1.85 nanograms per milliliter, I think it is. And uh, conversely, uh, for the um, – sorry, in the trials where they have the people recreating it, they're essentially finding – 0.07 nanograms. That's the average, which is uh, a fourteenth of a nanogram. So, you know, you've got 1.85 nanograms in the evidence, but when they have these people recreating it, they're finding a fourteenth of a nanogram. So it's a, yeah, it's roughly 28 times or 25 times more DNA that they find in the actual evidence than they do with these tests with the lackeys that are handling it. And uh, one other thing, too, is they they have it tested for these various things such as, you know, amylase for the saliva, uh, urine they can rule out, semen they can rule out, those things. And they don't find amylase and they don't find anything other than to to leave you with it must be from sweat. Although I don't know why it couldn't just be from skin cells. Just Right. I, that, that surprised me that they kept saying sweat, that it was sweat DNA. When they could just be sloughing skin cells, but well, and that kind of goes back to uh, the story that the prosecution tells in the original trial. They say sweat DNA, sweat DNA, sweat DNA constantly. Um, right. So you know, it just kind of goes back to well, if we can just rule out that it was sweat DNA, then uh, or you know, by saying say it's saliva, that's kind of I think why they did that test. Well, then that would really you know cut off that. Uh, that evidence when in reality you don't know that it's sweat DNA. And yes, that's what prosecution said throughout the original trial uh, as a possible, but it's more should be more phrased as a possible source of the DNA and not absolutely. That was def- definitively sweat DNA. Yeah. It's just DNA, not from blood or semen or urine. And now we also know not from saliva. Right. And even if it had been saliva, I don't know. I mean, Eric, I know you can see me because, you know, when we video, but you can see that often I, when I'm thinking or listening to you, I put my hands on my lips. I can easily transfer saliva to my fingers. Yep. So simply having saliva on your hands is not out of the ordinary or out, you know, if you touch your face, your, your mouth, your lips, if you sneeze, Absolutely. you can have saliva on your hands. So even had they found saliva, that would not have necessarily been incriminating or suspicious either. But that's that's exactly my point. I, I had this no. written down even no, okay. even before the test results came back. In you know, as I'm watching the documentary, I'm I'm typing out this test means nothing. Even if it comes back for saliva, we've right. already established that he had a cut on his finger and that there are gaps in the in the blood stain. There, the blood stains are in different books. Well. 
you stick your finger in your mouth because it's bleeding all over the place because you don't want to get the blood everywhere. And then when you go and, um, you know, work the latch, since the cut was further down on like the, the knuckle closer to the, the palm, um, you maybe, you know, you don't have any blood now there, but you've got a bunch of, sp- of spit on your finger from having it stuck in your mouth the whole time. Well, there you go. It could have been saliva onto the hood latch from that. Again, that didn't turn out to be the case, but, uh, even from the beginning, I'm like, this test means nothing either way. It doesn't show one way or the other what actually happened in the activity level. We just activity know that the level. source is Stephen Avery. Yep. yep. Yeah, and, and it comes back to what we said last episode and what Kathleen Zellner says. If I can prove even one thing wrong that the prosecution presented – then I can begin to unravel all the threads and show that it's all wrong. And that is just a gross misunderstanding of forensic science. That may be true from an attorney's standpoint, and that is very true for reasonable doubt and those sorts of things. And she is, again, I respect her approach that way, but it is not how a forensic scientist would look at this, and it doesn't change source versus activity level differentiation. But, you know, we said this last time. Okay, so the, one of the, the sources I went to was the literature. And this v- very much surprised me where Dr. Reich is saying, yeah, that kind of DNA you wouldn't expect for touch DNA. And yes, they try to recreate it in their very small sample size. They find a fraction of the amount of DNA found in the evidence sample. But again, you know, we don't know the manner in which it was touched or how vigorously or skin cells or, or that – but I went to the literature, and one of the articles that I pulled was by Meekin and Jameson. And I don't know Meekin so much, Georgina Meekin, but Alan Jameson is fairly well known in the DNA community. Uh, they wrote an article called DNA Transfer, Review and Implications for Casework. And it was published in 2013 in the Forensic Science International Genetics uh, subdivision of FSI. And that's uh, pages 434 to 443 is the reference. And I'm happy to share this with listeners if you want to take a look. And so this article reviews various studies that have been done. And they look at all kinds of different DNA and just some of the subsections. Activity-related levels of DNA beneath fingernails. Wearer DNA. DNA transfer to skin. Background levels of foreign DNA under uh, under fingernails. DNA transferred to various kinds of items, shedder status, condition of skin, factors affecting the persistence of trace DNA, factors affecting analytical recovery. And it's all about the amount of DNA that you might find on various kinds of surfaces. And the I'll just direct readers to table number one, where they go through all kinds of different surfaces, such as direct swabbing of the hand which produced anywhere between 2 and 150 nanograms of DNA. That is uh, order of magnitude, <laughs> multiple right. orders of magnitude difference. That's right. huge. Right. Now, that's swabbing the hand of a person. So uh, holding a plastic knife or mug or glass for 15 minutes produced 7 to 34 nanograms of DNA. Um, let's see, uh, one minute of handling a door frame, grabbing it, produced 0 to 0.2 nanograms of DNA. Here's a great one. A melanin-coated board, which was held for 10 seconds with some pressure, produced, and here's the, here's what I like, between 0 and 160 nanograms of DNA. <laughs> 
Glass being held for one minute, zero to five nanograms. Fabric, zero to 15 nanograms. Wood, zero to 169 nanograms. Cotton, six to 12 nanograms. Plastic, rubbing it for 10 to 15 seconds, 0.4 to 0.5. My point is when you look at this table, the ranges are all over. And in talking to other DNA analysts, the appropriate answer is we infer very little from the amount of DNA found on a surface about the length of contact, what might one expect, because it's all over the board. And that is what makes the most sense to me. That seems the most reasonable given scientific data, what analysts are prepared to testify in court, and the idea that Kathleen Zellner and even this Dr. Reich, which seems to support it, would go, that's so little DNA for that, uh, or that's so much DNA found on there that it must have been planted and therefore planted by the police. And because there's no saliva, it had to have come from some sweat swab somewhere. And then they go to this crazy theory that they collected this swab during a, um, basically collecting sweat from Stephen Avery's groin when he was first arrested and that those swabs which got thrown away somehow made it back into the agents. I think Agent Weigert is who they assume must have stolen those and then somehow plants them on the vehicle. It is so ridiculous, so ludicrous that even if he takes the opinion, that's a lot of DNA. Okay. All right, that's a lot of DNA for handling a latch. I, I, given these ranges I'm looking at in this article, it doesn't, in fact, it seems quite reasonable to be in there. I would right. be concerned if they found grams of DNA, but, um, <laughs> nan- <laughs> nanograms of DNA seems to be absolutely appropriate. Finding 1.85 nanograms seems in range with all this other stuff. Yes, their sampling was lower than that but also in these ranges it's all over the map and that seems like a crazy inference to then go from well that's a lot of dna therefore it must have been planted and then accuse this officer of basically falsifying evidence which i it is said so matter-of-factly that I am surprised there will not be a lawsuit out of, or I, I shouldn't say there won't be a lawsuit. I'm surprised there is not a lawsuit yet. Already. Because it, it is fairly slanderous. And because they say, well, he did this. I don't see how you get that jump. That's crazy. Yeah. And she says it over and over again. And by the end of the documentary, it's, it's, it's an established fact in her mind. Well, since we know that they planted uh, his DNA on the hood latch, then all this other stuff. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You have right. not proven that he plant, that DNA was planted at all. You just, no. you, and- you did a shitty little test with three people that meant nothing and then yeah. decided uh, that it meant the world. Um, yeah. it, it, it is just as believable that that test that she did with those three people uh, accurately proves that uh, the DNA was planted. It also, to the same extent, accurately proves that the Arizona Cardinals are going to win the Super Bowl in 2019. <laughs> yeah. They didn't say this at all, but I mean, had it come from a cotton swab, you might expect some cotton fibers and some other things. And, you know, 
But they used a cotton swab to collect the sample. Right, right, right. Yeah, that was another thing, too, was the appearance of the swab. They kept focusing on how it wasn't dirty enough and this... that was all such that was pretty garbage to me. And I was really surprised again at the the leaps and bounds from that's more than usual DNA for this kind of activity, which according to literature is not, but from their little study, it's more than one might expect. That means it was planted. It I, I Yeah, I was not happy with that. So uh, I think she would have been better served and, and even by extension, Avery would have been better served if she would have taken a more of a Mythbusters approach to things. You, you ever used to watch Mythbusters, fan yeah. of the show? Yeah, I love the show. You remember, they would, they would do a thing and they would be like, okay, here's how the myth goes, right? And they would, they would redo it. And then most of the times it would fail and not work, right? Yeah. And then they would say, well, then let's, let's recreate the results of the myth, right? Let's see what it would have taken. So like in uh, Goldeneye, the James Bond movie, you, know, you got a pen with a little bit of explosives in it and the guy's like clicking the pen, clicking the pen. And then finally he steps it down and it goes, boom, and it explodes. And he, they're like, yeah, I don't care what explosives you put in a pen. There's only so big of an explosion, you know, that quantity of explosives can give. So then they say, okay, let's, let's recreate the results and they'd see, well, how much would I have needed to fit into a pen? How big would the pen have needed to be in order to create the explosion that you saw on TV? So there you go. Do the same thing. Have uh, your people put their hands in their pockets, go run around the block and come back all sweaty, rub their hands together and touch the latch. Let's just do other things to figure out, okay, what could have produced this amount of sweat because just three people standing in an air-conditioned or cold Wisconsin garage didn't produce enough DNA onto this hood latch to transfer off uh, for that to work. But, I don't know, go get some sweaty Wisconsin farmhand to come in and try it after working on the farm all day and not showering and moving a body all across a, a, a salvage yard. Maybe you got enough DNA to go onto the hood after doing all that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I don't... Uh... Yeah, I don't buy that at all. So here's why I started asking about Dr. Reich when I when I first came on, because uh, I, I think um, while he's done some some work you know in the forensics field, I don't think he ever worked as a forensic scientist. Um, I don't know if you caught this. He made us. He said secretors are a myth. Did did you remember him saying that? Oh yeah, no that that totally stood out to me. It stood out to me because it was something that I had learned. I used to teach in my basic forensic science courses, and it was something that I was going to ask uh, some DNA folks about, to, you know, the, because he, he he took it to the level, I'm sure that's where you're going, about shedders being a myth. Well, okay, so, but first he said secretors are a myth, and then he kind right. of, he followed that up talking about shedders, so I, maybe he meant shedders at the very beginning. No, he meant secretors, and he, he definitely he definitely meant secretors. Okay. And, and then, and then followed up talking about how how are how are secretors a myth? No, Eric, Eric, I I don't know. I when I saw that, I went, oh, I, I that's news to me. I thought that was a thing that I it, because I used to teach this. Twenty percent of people are known to be secretors, which means that they would in their uh, fluids, et cetera, have you know a high amount of ABO antigens. Right, their blood and, type would be would be seen in their other bodily fluids, non blood bodily right. fluids. 
Right. And I, I thought maybe that got debunked or demythed and it turned out, no, no, um, they're not actually secretors. They, you know, they had this or this or that in their stuff or they had, I thought maybe some, somewhere in the DNA community, maybe they debunked that. And I was unaware of that and thought, well, I'm, I'll have to look that up later or talk to DNA folks. I went looking. I didn't see anything. And oh, then- no kidding. Huh. <laughs> And then he follows again. He follows it up with a conversation about shedders and non-shedders. And I, and I always like, hear about shedders in the research, right? So I was like, "Wait a minute! I thought that was a thing." Is like just certain people tend to shed more DNA than others. So yeah. I went, I went searching through the literature on that, and sure yeah. enough, there's a very clear article that while there is a lot of variation, yes, uh, that uh, that the people that tended to have more DNA on the surface that they touched tended in general, every time they touched to again, tend to not every time, but tend to leave more. Um, so I'm just like, anyway, his statements seem to be completely off base from what the rest of the literature is, is already saying again, we're not DNA experts here, but you know, we're, we're pretty up on what's going on in the forensic community and news to us and then in just looking for through recent literature i see none of this being published yeah i'm glad you looked that up because i just kind of assumed that maybe i didn't i hadn't been keeping up with it It was sort of like some of the arson theories and these things have been debunked or something but yeah i'm glad you looked that up i i i i didn't know what to make of that and i took it somewhat at face value that he was accurate and then when he mispronounced buckle I went, I just, that was the last what do you line. Mean? He said, buccal. And I was like. Oh, it's, what? it's a multi, you, it's a multi pronoun. You can pronounce it either way. I know. I know. Oh. I'm kidding. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> My bad. No, no. It, it's, it's, I, I meant that to be. That was a joke. You know, oh, My that's bad. the, yeah, it was a joke. That's, that wasn't the most serious mistake that he made. Okay. And yes. There, there are multiple pronunciations. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, on the shedder secretor, and that you know, even in the, the realm of fingerprints, we know that some people in the literature have been identified as good donors versus poor donors, and that's something yep. that uh, the International Fingerprint Research Group has identified in your studies. You should make sure that you have representatives of both pools good donors and poor donors because of that kind of variability as well, and that it's known that some people are good. Donors, in the sense, they leave behind a large amount of sweat and components, and other people don't. And and so it would make sense you had good shedders and bad shedders, and good secretors and non-secretors, etc. Well, before I move on to the next thing, now would be a good time to thank one of our sponsors for this episode, Idemia, the global leader in augmented identity. Their technology has combined digital and cloud expertise to bring efficiency and next-generation user experiences to their customers. Idemi has launched a new product called Case Aphis. It's a portable latent print examination tool supported by the full power of Idemia's flagship MBIS matching algorithms. It's totally standalone, doesn't need to connect to your main Aphis or internet, no security, no firewall, no sieges permission. It's a standalone system for latent print examiners. It lets you search latent prints recovered from a crime scene against a known set of elimination print, Sussex print, morgue prints, whatever, toe prints, footprints, whatever you got. You can search against that for that specific case. The tool will improve your casework efficiency and reduce erroneous exclusions. 
Learn more about Idemia and KSAFIS by contacting us today at info.usa at Idemia. That's I-D-E-M-I-A dot com. Solve your cases faster today with KSAFIS. All right. So during the commercial break there, I took a, another quick look uh, just to make sure I was looking at the right article. So the, the article that I looked up about uh, shedder status was from Forensic Science International Genetics uh, called Shedder Status, an Analysis of Self and Non-Self DNA in Multiple Handprints Deposited by the Same Individuals Over Time by M. Gore Fowler at all. I'm going to go with at all on that one because uh, it gets it gets kind of European on me there. Uh, and then uh, there, another one, an Australian study about how men and thumbs tend to leave more DNA than uh, other areas uh, from a group from Flinders University in Australia that is uh, going to be in the same journal, uh, but even this year. So uh, it, again, from what I can see, it, it seems pretty clear that shedders and um, people shedding different amounts of DNA is is absolutely not the myth that Dr. Reich suggests that it is. Um, so we're going to move into talking about the bullet fragment. So this is the bullet that was not initially found, but later found in Stephen Avery's garage uh, that was tested uh, for Teresa Hallbach's uh, DNA. And in season two here, they do a whole lot more with the bullet, including looking for uh, bone fragments uh, embedded in the bullet lead. Uh, they bring in uh, firearms uh, experts to test uh, if a 22 could go through someone's head uh, completely. Before we kind of get into the specifics of the forensics on it, uh, Zellner uh, at one point says um, that the, this bullet fragment, quote, it's the whole case. Glenn? Is is uh, is this bullet fragment the whole case? Well, I wouldn't say it's the whole case. Uh, it uh, certainly goes towards the cause of death, but even if the cause of death is wrong, uh doesn't mean that she wasn't murdered there or by that individual or on that property or in a like manner of circumstances. <laughs> it yeah. just goes towards cause of death. I, I mean, I, I would suggest that um, the, the bullet by itself is pretty weak, uh, given all the circumstances around it, the time it was found and, and, and everything else. But the car, I would think is the whole case that RAV4, that's where all the, the evidence that really convinces me is all mostly tied in with the car there. Uh, the, I mean, it, it's a very important piece of evidence, but, uh, again, she's, she makes these, these statements that are just just plain not true and then says okay this is the entire case and then shows how it presumably uh didn't happen like uh the prosecution said it did therefore he's completely innocent and all the evidence is planted and it just doesn't hold true mm, yeah uh, but so the, the expert that we're going to talk about for the uh, more like the recreation, uh, the ballistics evidence uh, is Luke mm-hmm. Haig, who's actually here yep. out of Arizona. I know Luke Haig is is absolutely the the king or one of the kings of ballistics, crime scene reconstruction. Uh, you know the, the the path that the bullets traveled teaches lots of classes on that. 
so the the main focus here is that there were no bone fragments found on this uh this bullet fragment mm-hmm. uh what were your initial thoughts of of that part of the evidence yeah i well first of all i i also have respect for luke Hague and i quite liked his experiments i thought they were actually fairly reasonable and I like that they involve the trace element. I mean, you know, Luke Hague does these shootings, but it really comes back to the micro trace evidence that is done by uh, Palnick. Yes. And uh, the Palnicks are no- I mean, like they are known as the trace guys. They are also the guys that Bart Epstein will send someone to if they need micro trace work done. That's who they send them to, and they are. And they really are. They have high, high reputation. They uh, Skip used to be head of um, Macron Institute, and then branched oh, okay. off to do do his own thing. The Macron Institute, world world renowned. Trace analysis, microscopy right. analysis in Chicago. Stoney used to, you know, be head of that too at one point. Uh, but the Palinics broke off to have their own private practice and they're, you know, are, are really considered top in the field. So I was very pleased to see that they got Haig and Palnick to do this kind of work and all the stuff that I saw. I quite liked it. I actually, I, I I'm just going to jump ahead. I am very. It's the one bit of evidence throughout all of this. It was the bloodstain pattern I talked about last episode. But I gotta say, I am not convinced that is the bullet that that shot her. The DNA I am confused about, but of course the DNA had problems when they were running it in the lab. And well, that was with the other- control, though, not not with the the sample uh, test, right? Yeah, but I thought it was very weak DNA. I, okay. I thought that there was some problems. I, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it it stood out to me is that there were some problems with it, and it was very much below threshold as well. Yes, controls failed, but I thought there was some other things about it being really low quantity DNA, and maybe not even you know full profile uh, or such. Uh, I thought there were issues with it. That said, the experiments that they do, they shoot, they shoot this bullet through bone and a, a tissue simulator. And then they get, and of course it makes complete sense, bone fragments embedded into the bullet on their right. test fires. Well, let me stop you there. Cause before we start yep. talking about the bullet fragments, cause that's, that's, that's the part that I really liked and thought was, was, uh, was very interesting and, uh, more compelling evidence than really anything we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. But the experiment of, well, a 22 wouldn't go through someone's head was the, the, was the best sample because what they basically did was have, they got a, um, a, a scapula from a uh, an Bo, animal, uh, bovine. bovine, yeah, bovine scapula, and then they got the like this six inches or so cube of ballistics gel, and then another yep. scapula at the other end to represent going through someone's head. Well, yep. my recollection of the uh, the path of the bullet followed from the uh, the forensic anthropologist wasn't that it was like center forehead out the back kind of thing but just through a portion of the side of the skull you know it maybe only went through two or three inches of of brain matter before coming out the other side that part i was kind of like eh, i'm not sure about the whole that whole setup of let's just go th- straight through you know six inches of ballistics gel before coming out yeah but but i did like you saying focusing then on the bone embedded in there 
I came away with, okay, that's very interesting, but I, I didn't quite hear, do you get that every time? Do right. you get, yeah. do you get bone embedded in this? And this is described as a bullet fragment. Yeah. Do you get this described, uh, embedded in every fragment of a bullet that goes through bone like this? Yeah. One thing that Luke Haig said that I really appreciated was he did set Kathleen Zellner straight because she said, well, there's no way that, you know, she said in talking to ballistics expert, they, you know, there's no way that the 22 would have exited, you know, her skull. And he said, and then I wrote this down. No, that could happen. It doesn't always happen, but it, it. could happen. And I like that. I like that he said, Oh no, it can, it can happen. And I've had 22s I've seen pass through. Not all the time. Uh, no. often there will be an exit and there, it might like indent the back of the skull, but not pass through. I've seen those kinds of things, but I've also seen exit wounds as well. And I have this note written down that basically she, she takes from this. Well, this, that's basically, it's rare, it's rare for it to happen. So it didn't happen in this case. Right, right. Well, no, right. rare events do happen in, in crimes as well. Yeah. So here's the thing that struck me. I mean, I get your point about how often do you actually get skull fragments bedded in bullets. And that's something we don't look for in the crime lab. And no. we, we typically would not notice that the wax. They talk about there. They there were three things that they saw on there when they did this, um, you know, SEM and mi- microscopy of the bullet. They saw basically a waxy substance. Sorry, they didn't see the bone fragments. They saw that in the test fired bullets, right. but on the actual evidence, they saw wax and what appeared to be some wood material, and I think some paint too that they thought something, some kind of paint uh, substance. The wax immediately went. Wait, that's what they use when they're doing comparisons. When you're mounting a bullet on a comparison scope, you often set it in wax and you, you know, you do it for your test fires and you do it for your, um, uh, evidence and when you're comparing cartridge cases and, and, uh, and bullets. So the wax wasn't surprising at all to me. That was not suspicious. That's part of the normal process. So if, if you're listening out there and you're not in the forensic science field, if you think like if you've seen on TV bullets under a comparison microscope where you've got like the two halves of the screen and they kind of move the bullet in so that the, all these lines and grooves match up, those bullets underneath the microscopes, they're not being like clamped in or anything. They're just like stuck on there with like with a little bit of gooiness. And, and, and why why can't they clamp them on there? It's because that would introduce more grooves and lines Scratch, and features. Scratches that, and lines and things. Exactly. They have to be right. very careful with the bullets. I know you knew that, but for the listener, right? <laughs> right. For, uh, they they that's why when um when they're extracting bullets from the wall or from other things they can't use needle nose pliers they can't use anything metal that could introduce new tool marks to the very soft often lead material of the bullet so even when like you said mounting they have to use this sticky wax material to hold it so that they don't introduce new microscopic markings on the bullet that's all normal practice now, I assume you would like to tell the listeners of what did they do with that wax? What did Kathleen Zellner assume that the wax was from? <laughs> well, okay, real quick before I get there, uh, that you also mentioned the cotton fibers. How do you typically collect DNA off of a surface with a mm-hmm. cotton swab? Uh, that, cotton like, swab. 
I'm like, well, of course, you know, this has already been tested for DNA by the crime lab. Of course, there's going to be cotton fibers all over this bullet fragment. Um, But okay, here, I got the quote written down. Okay. Kathleen Zellner, quote, you can rule out skin cells from the inside of the scalp because there'd be many more. There'd be a higher quantity of DNA on this bullet. DNA that's much more consistent with chapstick DNA uh, than blood or the inside of the scalp. I believe what happened was that chapstick was removed with the swab because we can see cotton fibers on the bullet. So, Glenn. Yep. You're trying to frame this guy. Yep. For, <laughs> and you go to the victim's house. Yeah. And you're looking around. Okay, I got to get I got to get some DNA onto this bullet cuz I there's yep. bullets everywhere. This is, you know, this is a a hick salvage yard there's bullets just on the ground everywhere i picked one up i brought yep. without getting my dna on it i brought yep. it over uh to to the victim's house and i'm looking around I'm like okay i could rub it on like her toothbrush no i could you know go to like too obvious yeah too obvious okay ah chapstick in the purse i know right. that no one else has ever used this chapstick before it is only the victims and i'm gonna rub it all over this bullet planted at the scene and it's going to prove that, uh, that, you know, that she was killed in the garage here. And if, hey, you know, okay, maybe her like roommate or whatever used this chapstick too. But if his DNA is found on this bullet, the crime lab up in the state lab, uh, you know, me down here in this tiny little county can convince them to go along with it, leave that out of the report and report that, but you know, it, just in case that were to happen, that only this guy's, uh, this lady's DNA is found on the bullet. Even though I got all this other evidence that I've already planted, I still need more and I need to plant this evidence here. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that is crazy. And I don't see that. And you know what? Kathleen Zellner, I know you're not going to listen to this episode, but if you should, here's what I'm going to say to you. I'm going to use your own logic against you, that if even one of your theories is wrong, Ah. then the whole thing starts to unravel and the entire foundation begins to crumble. And that even one thing that we can show is wrong, i.e. the wax came from a very simple explanation and her ballistics expert or her SEM expert even said this could have come from when they're analyzing in the laboratory. It came from when they're analyzing it in the laboratory. We're telling you that. That's, of course, where it came from. Not this other approach. If even one thing is wrong in your theory, then the whole thing unravels. Right? Right? It's their own logic. Well, yes. So, Glenn, how about this? Is the evidence that we're seeing here her scalp that's found in the in the in one of the burn places around the area uh and this bullet found in the garage is does this evidence rule out the possibility that she was shot more than once that uh one bullet went through her head and was never found and another bullet went through a fleshy part of her body and was found in the garage no, that that's just as plausible. Well, it's it's more plausible than the theory of the chapstick, but yeah, that's that's very plausible. The, um, her legal assistant, that's you know always following her around everywhere, goes on yep. to say, "Well, they're stuck with it. The they say this bullet went through her head. They can't backtrack, or maybe it wouldn't, you know, picked up bone, but it still has her DNA." Okay, this is that's a well, I completely disagree, and I don't think that there's any 
case uh, precedence for that. That is an entire legal argument, not a scientific one. Sure, this bullet doesn't seem to suggest that it went through her skull. That doesn't mean any uh, all the things that she's trying to get from it. Yeah, yeah, and I have to admit that. And and I look, I'm saying now, I am very skeptical now that this bullet is the bullet that went into the head. And the fact that, and and I love that they did this work, the fact that uh, Palnick found wood fragments in it, and they had all, you know, they made a big deal about all the shootings uh, throughout, you know, all the bullets and cartridge cases and all the shooting that happens on this property, which in Wisconsin, I mean, that is, that's everyday life. Yep. Uh, You know, I have to say, there was uh, there was enough reasonable doubt on that aspect for me to go. I'm not so sure that this bullet is that significant at this point. The DNA part that's the part that confuses me. Finding this profile, but there were some issues with the you know, like you said, the failed controls and and I thought and I thought I mean, please, I hope someone corrects me. I thought there were some issues with this DNA being a, a incomplete profile below stochastic thresholds and that. Some DNA they might not normally have reported on this, and that now I'm beginning to question. Well, you know, how good was that? Was were those DNA results? I really would like a DNA expert to revisit that that you know profile match and go, yeah, let's take a look at this from another perspective here, because it, I, I am really now questioning: Does this bullet ever pass through Teresa Hallbach? I don't know. I gotta say, I mean, she their tests. And particularly the micro trace stuff really made me take a step back and go, this is, yeah. that's, that's actually really good forensic evidence. That's a good approach. Again, everything Palnick said, I went, oh, this guy's great. He's fair. Uh, he, he interjected. This is probably wax from the bullet comparison <laughs> in the lab. Right. And he, he, he is exactly what I would expect from a top tier forensic scientist trace analyst. So how about this? You know, she's shot or uh, blood. What's that? Maybe she's standing when she shot the first time. Maybe she's not even shot. Maybe she is, you know, hit over the head with a, a hammer or something. Sure. Uh, and the the forensic anthropologist also got it wrong. I mean, it is now yeah. just shards of, um, you know, again, this is now questioning multiple aspects of, of the, of the yep. forensic evidence that's there. But either way, I, either. I'm she glad was, you said that. Either maybe she was shot or uh, in the head, or maybe that that expert got it wrong. Maybe she wasn't shot in the head, or uh, maybe she was shot in the head, and also some of the blood that she was spilling from whatever wound got onto a bullet fragment because there's bullet fragments. Just this this place is lousy with bullet fragments, evidently. And this little piece of bullet with some blood on it got kicked across the uh, the garage underneath uh, some other stuff or in a cleanup. Maybe that's part, why the blood is or DNA is degraded is because it got partly washed with whatever they used to clean up, even though there wasn't evidence necessarily of a cleanup in the garage. But in, in any case, there seems to be so many other possible reasons while there, there might be low quantity dna on this bullet fragment without it having gone through her skull again i'd question whether or not you always leave those skull uh, pieces embedded in the lead on every bullet fragment that goes you know through somebody but a 
this bullet fragment isn't the entirety of the case. And uh, B, there seems to be so many other explanations of you know how that got there other than it was planted. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm willing to accept that this bullet didn't have to pass through her head. And I have to admit, the, the wood fragments have me very confused. How else could those wood fragments be there if it didn't pass through or at some point strike you know the the, uh, the I think wood and paint they had mentioned you know the wood and paint right. potentially of the the garage how how else could that be there i mean that i have to admit that really throws me and again i'm a forensic scientist i have to imagine a, a juror and you know Kathleen kept saying if we were to retry this i've got reasonable doubt and i i have to admit if they went with the exact same prosecution and the same theories and the same right. style oh, as the they first one, they would totally one. have to do a different, different, uh, different theories than what they did if they were, if they were ever going to retry this. Yeah, I and mean, my my point is, I mean, she is she is seeking reasonable doubt, and she's doing some damn good work to get towards it. But like like we keep saying, there are plenty of other alternatives that weren't explored. But like we've seen in some cases like the staircase, prosecution prosecution has to have a narrative. We know this from the juror yep. studies. They need a narrative. They need a story. And they need it to sort of fit everything. Kathleen is dissecting this and finding that it doesn't quite fit everything. But that does not mean that it, it didn't happen slightly differently and slightly different ways. But... Yeah, you know that's the game that gets played in the adversarial system with with jurors is to make make a story that fits, and she's dismantling those elements. But it does not mean that these people or that person didn't commit that crime. All right, how about this? She gets shot twice: once through the uh, the head, uh, once through the gut. Uh, the one from that goes through her gut still has plenty of energy because uh, it doesn't hit any bone. It goes through her. And strikes uh, the the side of the garage, getting wood and paint on it. Does that work for you? Yeah, that that could work for me. I, I'm 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 willing to accept that much more than someone took <laughs> Carmex and wiped it all over the bullet with a cotton swab. That's much more plausible. That's like, that's, that's your go, your go to brand, the Carmex. Well, yeah, I yeah, guess. yeah, okay. The Carnuba wax. All right, a couple uh, a couple uh, short topic ones uh, before we close out this episode. And uh, if you're waiting for our discussion of Brendan Dassey, that's coming. We just got it. We you know trying to we'll lump that all together. Yeah, we'll lump that all together. Uh, I know the story's told all mixed up, but we want to kind of focus on different topics at different times. Uh, so Brendan Dassey stuff that's going to come in a different episode. Um, okay, so so the documentary, uh, this actually comes from a reporter on Nightline, uh, but Kathleen Zellner kind of makes you know, other references similar to it. He says, quote, I would imagine his fingerprints would be all over the thing, talking about yeah, the, uh, the vehicle. You wrote that yeah. down too? Yeah, so Glenn, uh, you know, uh-huh. crosses the inside of a vehicle for uh, latent prints. Are you surprised when you don't find anything? 
Nope. Uh, and the outside of the vehicle as well, especially the exterior sitting for days in rain. And they talked about the rain in the previous season that had been rainy around that time of, of year. But no, I don't expect uh, fingerprints that are identifiable. We right. always make that distinction between identifiable latent prints and smudges and smears and other things, especially on textured surfaces, fabrics, and such that and leather on the inside of a vehicle and that that RAV4 I I know from experience uh, having had <laughs> my family's RAV4 broken into at one point and having to get fingerprints from it I did not find fingerprints all over the inside I did find some fingerprints on the glass uh the the window and I found them in the back seat where my kids were sitting a lot <laughs> yeah but they're good I at leaving not, fingerprints right uh but I do not expect the car to be covered in fingerprints, of course, as a layperson reporter would expect. All right, let's let's go, let's run down a list here. Uh, good surface or bad surface for latent prints on the inside of the car? Steering wheel, bad. Gear shift, bad. Although I just had a case with a gear shift latent print, uh, I had not seen a gear shift latent print in fifteen years. Rearview mirror, usually pretty good on the mirror part. If if you touch it, right. If you touch it. The seat, the dash, or the non-window part of the door. Bad. The metal, the very tip metal part of the belt buckle that goes into the little slot. Hit and miss. Uh, the small surface and the hole in the middle make it often difficult. You often find smudges and smears on them, but not always a whole fingerprint. I have seen both. Interior door handle. Uh, don't think so, especially when they're plastic and molded. Right. Yeah. So any anything that's like like that, a plastic molded kind of thing, the 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 entire inside of your door, your entire dash, it's all pretty bad surface. Your whole steering wheel, pretty bad surface for fingerprints, and right. and a lot of that's by design. You don't want all the things that you touch to be covered in fingerprints all the time. Uh, it's, it's not aesthetically pleasing. So it's designed not to have fingerprints on them. The outside of a car, the windows inside or out. Perfect. Those are like ideal surfaces for fingerprints. Uh, but basically everything else on the inside of a car, absolutely terrible. Yeah. All right. Speaking of fingerprinting, brain fingerprinting. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, boy, <laughs> Uh, do you want to let's tell the listeners about that uh, hocus pocus magic? I mean, I mean that uh, the science uh, be behind that. So uh, the idea here is that you flash words up on a screen, and if it's a word you recognize, and so they would give some samples that they know he would recognize, like his address or um, Teresa Halbach, just that name. We know that he's going to recognize it because it's been his life for the past 10 years. And then other things, just detractors, that he's just not going to think of anything when he sees those words. Just, you know, Mogollon Rim, speaking of a geological feature here in Arizona that no one's heard of outside of Arizona, or, you know, some just random thing that, you know, you just wouldn't have ever heard of. And he's going to have no response to that. And then they're going to read off some question statements and see if he's going to have a reaction to those. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, he has no reaction to all of those. But the whole setup to this test was, oh, 
now that we've seen that this bloodstain pattern on the inside back door of the RAV4 has to have been cast off from a hammer, then we're going to test him by saying things like hammer <laughs> or kneeling down, right? It's right. like, what? <laughs> First off, that you, you've not proven that that's the way that she died with a hammer right. or kneeling down. So whether or not he has a reaction to that isn't going to mean anything. And the phrases that they flash up, I don't know if you were paying attention to those. Yeah. yeah. They were so generic. You don't know the specifics of what happened when this lady died. So you can't test for the specifics in a, even if this works, you can't test for it because you don't know the specifics of what happened. Yeah. And you know, the, the let, let's focus on the working part. As I recall, and I, I, I apologize. I didn't do the research here, but what he was talking about, I believe is the exact same research, the, the approach that, uh, Busey used in one of his yeah, early studies, configural processing, where they would show fingerprints to experts and non-experts. And when a fingerprint expert would look at a fingerprint, they would have the recognition wave. And I think it was the exact same wave that they were talking about in this because it looked exactly like I remember from the data. It would be this little uh, this little depressed wave thing that would happen. There would be this little delay where you wouldn't get that with a layperson because they – a fingerprint doesn't really mean anything to them. And or I think specifically it was upside down yeah, faces that, right, and upside down fingerprints. Right. Where with faces, since everyone knows faces, when you see an upside down face, there's this like delay, like ooh, as your brain goes, oh, that's a face, but it's upside down. Yeah. Regular people, you know, if you show them an upside down fingerprint, as we well know from every TV show and movie ever made. Right. Uh, there's no recognition of that's upside down, but an expert's going to instantly go, as we've talked about before, hey, that's upside down, and the brain does a thing. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I think behind the science, there's some theory there of recognition. Right. But like you're saying, the things are so generic. If you just tell me hammer kneeling down, yeah, that's what I do when I'm working on some carpentry or I'm – hammering in baseboard or some kind of wainscoting or something like that i don't necessarily think that it has to go right to and and we don't even know that's how halbach died so the idea that because it wasn't recognized in some significant way is therefore positive proof that's that's crazy to me but well that's why i said zellner is a advocate for her client to a <laughs> level of um zealotry that i have to respect and uh, just not the not the kind of science i support there you go and i think that's the the main takeaway as we kind of start wrapping this episode up is that as a forensic scientist it really irked me and got under my skin that forensic science this thing that I, i'm really passionate about is being twisted and overstated and misused by someone who apparently has no respect for uh, for forensic science and that <laughs> really makes me angry that uh, that it's being used like this yeah now, I, I have that same reaction as, though. angry with uh, <laughs> okay. with the prosecution side you know using it inappropriately like this but okay that I think that's part of what really got to me about uh, all this is that all this 
not all, let me say, many of the things that uh, the experiments that she did and the statements that she made are just bullshit. And I, I think uh, calling her out on it is, is absolutely appropriate. But it just really makes me angry that it's that this field is being uh, used like this. Well, well, as long as we balance that with, and yet that happens with prosecution as well. And we all have seen it these does. cases and these testimony where they abuse forensic science in the same way. And, you know, that's, that's the problem with the adversarial system is we can't get out of this cocoon and, and just completely be independent that it gets perverted. It gets twisted. It gets filtered through the lens of an attorney with an agenda who is clearly either side biased and trying to tell a narrative so they can connect dots for jurors, whether or not those things actually happened, even if it's one explanation for it, they zero in on, yeah, but you can't prove me wrong. And they're basically, basically, again, prosecution often put together this story. And even if little elements are wrong about it, the crime might have still happened, but maybe not exactly that way, but they feel compelled to tell the story so that jurors go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And, and there is this misconception that they have proven all those little elements of the story, but they really haven't. And I think Zellner, I will say to her credit, is poking holes at exactly that little narrative, but has not convinced me or apparently you that the crime didn't happen and the actor involved is still the actor involved, but maybe not exactly the way it was presented by prosecution. All right. Well, that will wrap up uh, this, uh, this episode. We talked about the DNA with some other experts, uh, brain fingerprinting firearms. Uh, but uh, next time we're going to go through the ultimate, we're, we're trying to piece together uh, the conspiracy the real killers, the real killers. <laughs> We're going to go through the other suspects, the other planters of evidence. Planters. Uh, yeah. The, uh, we're going to we're going to weave together the entire conspiracy of who was where and when uh, and so it'll be a little bit away from the forensic side yeah uh, but uh, we're going to go through all through that and then finally also uh, discuss Brandon Dassey's case uh, going through appeals i admit i haven't been paying attention because uh, i saw over a year ago that you know a judge ordered him to be released I thought he'd been out for over a year now, but uh, obviously yeah, looking at the story here, uh, he's been in prison still this whole time. So uh, I'm you know, definitely at fault for, for not keeping up with the story until the next uh, season came out, but uh, we'll follow up with him as well. So I think that'll be the the third part. Yeah, and, and let me say this too. It, listeners, it, it's worth a watch. It really is worth a watch. I hope you will go and watch these episodes and join in in the forensic discussion. And we want to talk about, you know, the forensics in your perspective. So I would encourage listeners, I, I think it's worth it, right? I mean, put the entertainment value aside. It, it, I mean, it's really interesting discussion of forensic science, right? Oh, well, yeah. And also the court system, because yeah, right, like half point. the show is what we've been really talking about so far. The other half is all about Brendan Dassey. And that is is very compelling and heartbreaking and and very interesting as well yeah it it, it really is a, a an interesting story and the notoriety that it's gained has a, attracted even bigger personalities than the first season i think is is a good starting place for a discussion on forensics yeah about bad forensics 
or bad interpretations from inconclusive forensics. And I, I think that's that's a good example also looking at like the Innocence Project. Pretty sure it was most of the cases that involved forensics wasn't like the forensic evidence. It was overstatements by the prosecution uh, that were really the underlying problem. So definitely an interesting place to have that uh, that discussion. So if you do want to get involved, you can tweet at us at Double Loop Pod on Twitter uh, or email us Glenn, G-L-E-N-N at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. And I think we should probably have to follow Kathleen Zellner on Twitter. We're going to have to add her as a follower. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we should tweet at her. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say maybe maybe we could tweet at her a couple of times because she's definitely a, a a tweeter. Is that a yep. a Twitter yep. user? A tweeter. Um, she she is quite active in in the show of, of some of the tweets that she's given uh, over time. Just to to finish up our discussion on on Kathleen Zellner, Glenn quote probably one of the most comprehensive motions ever filed in the United States. If not the most comprehensive. Come on. <laughs> oh, that that quote was that quote is Trump like. Oh yeah. The most comprehensive ever. It's the greatest motion ever filed. <laughs> I think I, I think I screamed at the at my phone as I was watching it at that point. Anyway. All right. Well, as we wrap things up here, I'll just like to tell listeners uh, if you're interested in taking some classes for fingerprint training. I'm teaching in Southern California in Anaheim, January 8th through the 10th, and Idemia Ron Smith hosted course. It is the inclusion of technology into the ACB process where students will learn about case APHIS and other technological tools that they can use to enhance their ACB documentation. I'm teaching an exclusion sufficiency class in Baton Rouge, April 29th through May 3rd with John Black. And lastly, an advanced ACB applications class, April 8th through the 12th. And that is in Hackensack, New Jersey, just outside of New York City. And uh, join us for any of those classes. Love to have you and uh, be a part of your professional training. Well, that same week, April 8th through the 12th, that you'll be up in New York. I'll be down in the Miami area. Oh, we're forcing the them to pick between us. It's like parents getting divorced. <laughs> <laughs> you have to bribe them. If you're already in the Florida area uh, or you want to fly in for the exclusionology class or using gyro in Photoshop class, I'm going to do those both that week. The first three days, the exclusionology class. The second two days, the Photoshop class. Uh, you can take them both or one or, or, one or the other. Uh, you can go to rayforensics.com for more information on that. So with that, uh, please listen to us every Thursday. Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Give us ratings. Follow us on Twitter at DoubleLoopPod. Consider contributing uh, at patreon.com for your enjoyment of what we provide in this podcast and for special patron-only content uh, that's available there. Uh, that'll be uh, sometime. We'll do start doing some videos of us doing some comparisons. We got uh, some of our notes from this episode and notes from uh, other article discussions. Uh, we're going to start putting lots more stuff up on the Patreon page, including access to all of our back catalog the first two years of the show remember the opinions expressed here belong to us and not to anybody else and with that we'll talk to you guys next week bye everybody have a good week bye